Good afternoon, everyone. How are you all doing? Excellent. Yeah, great. Awesome. Right. Awesome. I am. This isn't just going to be like I'm not going to like talk at you because you don't look like glasses, and I'm not a jug, and I'm not here to like pour my superior knowledge into your heads. I want to have a bit more of a informal discussion. So the first thing that I'd like you to do is, if you're sitting in the two rows at the end, bring it in. Bring it in, people. Yeah, so that we could be nice and close. Thank you so much. So, we face a challenge as libertarians because statist ideas are a pretty easy sell, uh, superficially, right? You know, you've got some poor people over here and some rich people over here. Why don't we just take something from over here and put it over there? And that should even things out, right? But it takes a much more nuanced understanding to realize that every action when it comes to economics has secondary and tertiary consequences like a row of dominoes falling down. And we always do have the moral argument at our disposal which is like, look, no, you don't get to take something from someone else. It's not their fault that there's poor people over there. They didn't create that. And that does carry some weight with some people. But I think it's very important for us and for people in general to be able to think economically, to think like an economist. I think the value of it transcends economics and politics. It's good just in general to have the discipline of being able to go, see if you take this action, what are going to be the next consequences of it and, and as it spreads forth like that. Um, and it's interesting, it's elegant. You know, economics has been called the dismal science, which I think sadly it has become because in university they fill it full of charts and mathematics and they make a subject that's actually really quite thrilling, engaging and interesting, boring as hell. I mean, do we have anyone who's studied any economics formally? Would you, can you comment on your experience? Lots of graphs, yeah. yeah. Right. It was, it was good up until kind of about halfway through my second year and then we got a very, very left-wing guy pushing a bunch of nonsense that I believed at the time and ended up leaving economics because I studied lots of very left-leaning economics courses. Um, so not a good experience for me overall, studying economics. Right, right. And if we look at the beginnings of economics with what Adam Smith and what have you, these people didn't bring out a whole bunch of charts in economics. They talked about a train of consequences from one economic action to the next. And that, um, you know, as Frederick Bastiat famously discussed in his wonderful essay, that which is seen and that which is not seen, um, you try and create a job over here, but what you're doing is you're just taking a little bit from everyone else and that money is not over there creating jobs for example. So I thought we could basically have a talk through some of the main um, arguments, some, maybe some of the bit more sophisticated arguments as well that you get um, from economic uh, novices, let's say, why they have sway in the public eye and if we can just kind of think through them together. Does anyone want to uh, volunteer one or shall I get the ball rolling? You get the ball rolling. Okay. Okay, so let's start with the minimum wage and that will roll on to 
other topics. So what's the, what are the main arguments for the minimum wage that you hear? It prevents the drive to the bottom. Okay, so we're not going to push wages down. I'll, um, I'll pay you five. Well, I'm going to pay you four four fifty. Well, since he's paying four fifty, then I might as well just pay four fifty as well. Would anyone like to start with something that's wrong with that? I will go. So the thing is, wages are not determined by capitalists. Capitalists don't get to choose what they pay their workers. You can't pay someone less than someone else is willing to pay for them. And how much is their labour worth? Well, that really depends on the skill level they have, but not just the skill level, because most of us are very, very skilled at using a computer compared to someone in 1992. But because everyone has those skills, everyone knows how to use a word processor, the internet and so forth, it's not of any value to anyone else to pay you to Facebook. I'm sorry, sometimes I wish it was. I would like to get paid to Facebook, but no one's gonna pay you to do that, unless, you, of course, you're very good at Facebook advertising and can use that to help their business. So, that's the, that's the first fallacy there. You have a system of supply and demand. This is a good thing, because it's to encourage people to acquire skills that they might not otherwise acquire in exchange for being able to help their fellow man better, they can also attain to a higher standard of living for themselves. That is the beauty of voluntarism. When, you know, when we trade, we both leave a trade better off. Now, what are some of the problems with the minimum wage? If you're low productivity, then you can't get a job. If your productivity is lower than the, what the minimum wage is. Yeah, if you're unsecure. Right, so if, you, if, you can't act, if your skills are not worth 6.50 an hour, no one's going to pay you for that. I think a really big problem, and this is where thinking economically is so important, people are only looking at the short term. We can't say that a minimum wage increase will not help anyone. It will help some people who are on a low income. But then, um, what about the long term? Because I'm not going to pay someone, say, £10 an hour to train them. While I'm training them, they're not going to make me anything. But if I can employ them for perhaps less than the minimum wage, it might not matter that much to them. They might be staying with their parents. They might have a flat share with several people. And so their rent is comparatively low. By getting that training, they could end up ha having a wage that's much greater than £10 an hour. And they won't need the government to mandate it either. They're becoming self-sufficient. They're becoming independent. Another big problem is that even if, you know, we sometimes hear this, oh, the studies are very ambiguous about whether the minimum wage causes unemployment. Like, it seems that sometimes job growth increases after the minimum wage is increased. Even if that is true, what about the prices in the shops? And this is a point that I didn't really realise at first about the minimum wage. It's not just the person that's working in the shop that gets the minimum wage. It's the person driving the products to the shop, it's the person in the warehouse. That means a 30% increase in the minimum wage could maybe result in a more than 30% increase in some low-level products that are mostly bought by people with low incomes. 
So, you know, you're, you, you've got a higher wage. At the end of the day, your wage is worth what it can buy. And it's by the price of things coming down that even the same wage can actually be worth more money. Now, what is one of the main arguments that uh, people say in terms of, well, you know, a little bit less for the shareholders will mean a little bit more for regular people. Have you heard this? And that will yeah. pump more money into the economy. What's wrong with thinking that, oh, even if we just redistribute the wealth from the top to the bottom, well, they've just got it in shares and bank accounts and things. It's not really doing anything important. But if we give it to the people at the bottom, they're going to go out to the shops and spend, and, and that's going to create jobs, and that's going to create prosperity. What are some of the things that are wrong with thinking that? Well, basically, uh, lower-income people tend to spend more on consumption, <coughs> and shareholders and people who are at higher income, they tend to spend more in investment. So right. you're actually taking money out of investment, which is the real production in the economy. Like, just by cons consuming, you cannot, you don't produce anything by consuming. You have to invest in new ideas and produce them in order to have real growth. Right. Right, so there's a drop, uh, there's some magical thing, did everyone get that? Basically the idea is, well that money wasn't pulled out of a hat. It didn't come out from under this box, out of nowhere. The money is not being magicked into existence, it's actually doing something else. If that goes into an investment, you could be buying a machine or a factory or what have you, and that's going to create more goods. What happens when there's more goods in the economy? Price falls. The price falls, it's supply and demand. Everyone attains a better living, standard of living, not just the people at the top when there's more goods and services in the economy. So you need to look at both sides of every equation. Now, what, what else might result from... I think one of the worst things is the, it kind of punishes uh, like small business startups because you've got to pay um, you've got to have a lot more revenue coming in to pay like a certain minimum wage, like seven pence an hour. But if right. you pay them less, then you could uh, get your business going uh, quicker and things. So it, it kind of punishes people like small businesses um, and discourages them from starting a business. Indeed. So you know, seven fifty minimum wage might not be that much of a difference for Tesco's, but certainly for mum and dad's businesses, <coughs> they're going to start struggling because. And here's another unintended consequence. I mean, anytime you see a line in the supermarket, why does there need to be a line? Why can't they just take a few more people on? That's, that's people's lives, right? You can't also see the amount of services that are not being provided right now. They're nowhere. You can't actually measure how much stuff we're not, I mean, I could get the, someone down the road to mow my lawn if I had a lawn. Uh, I'm not exactly a captain of industry yet, um, uh, but you know, I might want to pay them five or an hour. You know, I can't do that. They can't do that. So the, the number of services that we're not getting, we can't even measure, the amount of time that people have to spend doing things themselves, which they could otherwise pay someone else to do it. And that guy, yeah, well, maybe they're only getting a fiver, but they still have, um, they, they still have access 
to all these other services, all those goods that are going into the market, pushing down the price of goods for cheaper. So one of the most tricky arguments we hear a lot is that, uh, or sorry, I, I make a mistake, that here's an idea, oh, we just need the government not to hand out money to people, but to create jobs, right? What is the, what's the problem with that? With saying, well, why, okay, I agree with you, you know, we shouldn't be paying people into dependency, that is a bad paradigm, but what we can do is we can create jobs for them. What's that, what's the problem with that? Depends what you mean by create jobs. The government spending... If it doesn't come from the market, we've got no idea whether or not we need it. There's, there's a big one. So how do you know that people even want those things done? How do you know what is the best thing and the, the worst? How do you know that creating 10,000 jobs in infrastructure is better or worse than creating them in the healthcare industry? We have no feedback mechanism to say how desirable those jobs are. I mean, we could create 10,000 jobs by paying 5,000 people to dig holes and then pay 5,000 people to fill them up. So, uh, does anyone have anything else? That's an objection to the manner in which? On the concept of government creating jobs. We never know how many jobs are destroyed as a consequence of us creating new jobs. Right, because we need to take the, again, there's no magic hat that these new, the wealth to funnel into these jobs is coming out of. That money has to be acquired from somewhere. And if you tax for it, then okay, these 10,000 people are benefiting, but everyone else is losing something to the tune of how much it costs to pay them. How else? Where else, so that's one way we could tax more to spend more. How else could the government create um, jobs? Print fiat money. You could print money. Yeah. What happens? What then? What happens? Inflation. Okay. So one thing is that because there's more money circulating in the economy, but the same number of goods, each of those dollars pounds. Sorry, what am I saying? Dollars for <laughs> is chasing. It's the same as putting. As putting more products into the economy drives the price down, putting more money into the economy drives the price up. Money is a commodity and it's got a value in relation to other products, which there's a book here called by Rothbard that says, what has the government done to our money where he, where he talks about this? So if you want some further reading. I know you're all very informed. I hope this isn't like 101 for you or anything like that. And maybe it is, but at the same time, I think that it's good to um, solidify. Remember, we've got a video audience as well. Oh. We may not have heard it. Hey, people at home, thank you. Please don't troll me. <laughs> okay, so there we, there's our options, right? We can tax more, and then we're all also going to disincentivize whatever we're taxing. So whatever productive work, there's that little bit less incentive to go and do that meaningful work when your tax is higher, right? Then, what about, see if you've got an infrastructure project. What about when the government money dries up? What are those people gonna do? They've just learned a bunch of skills that aren't really that needed, right? It's like, here's another good one. Well, why don't we bail out 
that motor company that's going bankrupt. We need, you know, some British cars, right? Well, the thing is, the demand for those cars has already been declining. We bail them out. Oh, we, we can sell our cars cheaper now. More people buy those cars, snap them up. What about when that money's done? The, the factory's more useless than it was before. Not only is that car manufacturer going to go out of business, the other one is as well, because people all only got those those cars. So this is, I mean, I see some people nodding and smiling. I love that. I mean, it's the elegance of it. It's the beauty of saying, well, what's going to be the next consequence of that? And then what's going to happen after that? Well, those car manufacturers are all being unemployed at the same time. If the factories were allowed to close down one at a time, they'd be easily assimilated into the economy those people are assimilated, then those people are assimilated. Now you've got a bunch of people with the same skills or a lack of skills that are all chasing the small jump number of jobs at the same time. And we've got a third way that the government can stimulate the economy to create jobs uh, other than printing money and um, tax and spend. What are we going into debt? Going into debt. Anyone want to speak about government debt? No, you guys hate speaking. That's okay, because I love it. You know, I'm the attention whore of the Scottish Libertarian Party. So obviously, you, you're kicking the can down the road. It, it incurs the same inflation problem, because more money is going into the economy now. Another thing is, it then creates the situation where we're used to spending this much money every year. And if we try and spend less, spend less into debt, the whole economy experiences a contraction at the same time. And people go, this is a disaster. People are all losing jobs at the same time. It's just the example with the car manufacturers going out of business one at a time, but writ large across the whole economy. So it's very easy to increase the debt. It's very difficult to get the political will together to hone in that. I mean, if we were disciplined and we could say, oh, we can go into debt this year and then we can pay it back next year, maybe there would be an argument for it. We wouldn't necessarily agree with that, but you'd have a stronger argument. The problem is there's always an inclination to offer people free stuff so that either they can vote for you, or if there are some corporations, they'll give you campaign finance and things like that. But where's the sell and oh, we want to give you less stuff? I'm used to getting this stuff. I've not planned for my life to have to provide this for myself because I've always got it for free and now I don't know what to do. So it's also kind of immoral to get benefits in the here and now and then expect your progeny to, or other people's progeny to kind of take up the consequences of that. I mean, there's some young faces in the audience and my generation, more so even your generation, are actually the, bearing the brunt of a period in history where, starting in the 60s, where it became the norm for governments to spend so much more than they taxed. And now, and now we're in a position where the people who benefited from all those free public services are pensioners and no one wants to end up in a situation where they're just dying in their houses. So it creates a very emotive um, uh, situation that stretches our compassion because 
by all rights, these people benefited more from the system being in place than from uh, than they paid into it, and now they're vulnerable. So the government can't create jobs, actually. Well, it can create jobs, but it's all it's never done in a vacuum. There's always a bunch of whatever way you use to do it, there's always a bunch of unintended consequences, like a string of dominoes flipping down one after the other. Um, does anyone have one that they come up time and time again, or ever, that they'd like to discuss? One what? One what, sorry? An example of an argument you get very frequently on, the, on economics. On One of the ones is that the tax the rich more. Tax if it wasn't for all these tax avoiders, shh, that's the problem. Um, never quantified, but that seems to be a And what's your instinct, if you don't mind me asking, to respond to that? Well, we're all tax avoiders for the start. Um, and that there's a very small amount of people that if you actually to look at the figures, how much money they want to spend and how much they want to actually get back in a tax. They're, we're talking, you know, pennies to millions, but it's, it's, right. it's the other way around, not the way they think it is. You're right. And um, Oxfam put out a report saying eight people own the same amount of wealth as the 50% poorest people in the world. When you actually looked at the figures they were using, they were basically just counting things like the property that they owned and the um, and debt and property versus you know mortgage and a few things like that, which is painfully ridiculous. If you actually added up their wealth, it came to four hundred and twenty billion, which was the approximate value of the number of peanuts in the third world. So the poor had as much in terms of peanuts as the richest eight people in the world. Not only that, but they weren't counting anything like, you know, the poor people's phones when they had them, uh, their, their, their general property or their um, social services that they got from government which is a form of wealth, it might not be well allocated or anything like that, but they were receiving various benefits. So, you th please. May I add something to that? Uh, actually, they were counting uh, debt, as in student loans, for example, as part of your wealth. So, a huge amount of people in the report were being counted as having negative wealth. Right. Which has, I mean, yeah, it has the double effect of Actually, um, you need more people in the to make up the statistic right. because some of them have negative wealth, so that you can come up with that huge fifty percent figure. And then also you're counting as the poorest on earth people who are just students who have graduated from uni. Wow. So they, they have like even any monetary terms. No one's yeah. bigger than someone who's loved in the oh, they're less well off than someone who's loved in the third world. You're only counting monetary value. Yeah. Then there's so much wealth in there which you're not counting at all. And it all speaks to it speaks to how highly they value a college education. Because try that with any other asset, right? I bought a diamond. Uh, and now I'm in negative wealth because I bought bought the diamond. Well, you say, well, no, you can 
the, the diamond has a resale value. What they're basically saying is the university degree which they went into debt for has no value. <laughs> Pretty shocking. That might actually be the case, sadly. So obviously the ones that we hear again and again about taxing the rich is that, um, well, it disincentivizes the economic activity that it requires to be rich, whereas at the same time it disincentivizes people going in to provide services that the government would otherwise provide, whether that's uh, or, um, or earning money to be able to provide those things for yourself. But um, again, that money isn't just, this is what they think, they just think it's in a bank account. Well, if it is in a bank account, that's because the bank believes that it can lend it out to some, well, now we're getting into money territory because we have a very corrupt banking system. Okay, let's just say, oh, they're just putting it into property. How's that helping anyone? Well, why are they putting it into property? It's because property is not meant to be an asset. Your property loses value. You have to pay money to upkeep it. But because we have a massive housing shortage and have had since perhaps the 70s or earlier, the house prices were like, oh, that sounds like a good investment. Plus, you're going to get you're going to get taxed. Uh, plus, uh, if you if you invest it, you can't save it. And the interest rates are artificially low. Thank you. The inter the interest rates are artificially low. The government always is printing money, so there's no point in just putting it in a savings account or a bond. It's going to devalue. Oh well, then I'll put it into property. Then people, you can't ever look at anything simply because this is like a. Uh, the motor of a car, you know, an economy, all of the parts are interrelated to anything else. You can't just go, well, there's a bunch of profiteering landlords over there. You can. But the question is, why are they able to profiteer? You can't have X amount of people to a house. That, sorry, you're not allowed to do that. Well, what if they're just out of school, they don't have many resources, and they all want to live in a small flat together, six, so they can save up money and then get some training? or go to their own house. It's no worse than people used than people lived throughout most of history. You go and see the old Bothies and they'd be like, yes, and 10 people, ten, uh, family would live here with their eight children in this one room. I'm not saying we should go back to that. I'm saying people should have the option to live frugally so that they can um, look after their future. And that'd be great, you know, stay with your mates for a while, get a job, save up the money, get some skills, and then, um, and then find out what you want to do with yourself. When you limit the number, another one on limiting people's options, if we can come back to the minimum wage, and one of the worst things about it that I think the left, or let's say centrist, even now the Tory party put up the minimum wage, so we see that this is now across the political spectrum, is, well, the left particularly go on about how you get treated at work, right? If there's hardly any jobs, your boss can treat you however they want. Supposing there's no minimum wage and you're getting paid a fiver, you just go, and, and, and this guy is an asshole, you just go, well, I'm just going to go into that job across the road. Yeah, I'm only earning 450 instead of a fiver, but at least I'm away from him. Now that changes the incentives in the workplace, and people in general have to treat their staff better because if they don't, they don't hold on to them and their boss says, you're out. We can't afford to keep on training, taking on staff again and again. 
the main thing that you want in life is options because when you have options you're in a strong bargaining position when you have fewer options you can't advocate for yourself and this is really what I think the left don't understand with things like workplace safety. When you've got someone in the government making laws for everyone on what kind of workplace safety they have to have at the workplace, how do they know whether it's worth the investment or not? The person who owns that factory can see, you know, what are the risks here? Am I going to have to pay out settlements and things like that? How much do my staff want these safety things, um, would they rather have a pay rise or would we rather introduce these, and most workplace safety accidents are um, by human error. So you've basically forced people to invest in a bunch of equipment that they don't even need, that they could be pay paying their staff with, it doesn't make any difference to the employer whether I give you a pension, whether I give you a higher wage, whether I give you more workplace safeties whether I get a, a nice fountain that you can all congregate beside and have your coffee a break. It's all the same to me as an employer. I've got a certain amount of money to spend. It's in a free market where you can walk in and out of a job, you're going to get roughly the kind of deal that you want for your wages. Roughly, not exactly, because a lot of people are involved. But that's, that's how it tends to be, and this was evidenced by uh, economist called Benjamin Powell who went to the third world and you know asked them in these sweatshops which by the way a lot of people would well everyone there would rather work than the other options because they were getting paid three to six times what they would get be, be usually getting paid if they weren't in sweatshops would you like better more time off would you like better workplace safety would you like this would you like that of course they said yes to everything who wouldn't but when they said would you like that or the amount of a dis decrease in the wage that you would have to incur in order to pay for it, they almost always said no. That, that, that's the thing, there's no free ride in economics. Everything comes at the expense of everything else. It's the nature of the universe. I'm here having a talk with you guys. That means that I can't be, um, I don't know, surfing or something else. But I get more value from this than I, I don't know how to do that. It sounds hard, it sounds boring. <laughs> I'd rather be hanging out with you guys because I only get to do this once in a while. But you guys are listening to me. You might very well be rather uh, having a coffee next door because I'm boring as hell. But you still prefer to stay here because you're too polite. You're too polite. You value staying more than you value leaving. So I just, um, I hope this wasn't too basic, I just thought it's, it's a great thing to just break things down and, and go through consequences. I just want, is there anything you, want, you guys want to ask her? How do you respond when someone says, oh this service just needs more money, just another billion and it'll be working perfectly? Okay, great question. Would you like to start? I mean, what's your response and I'll rip off you. Well, the, if you look at the prices of market goods over the past how many years, They've been um, either slowly decreasing, staying the same, or maybe some of them slightly increasing, depends on what it is. But if you look at government services, they all massive increases every year for for since since they started, and never and the service isn't great anyway. This is a very interesting point. Thank you for raising it because the if you were a private company and you had let's say the NHS being the obvious one, 
the amount of investment in the NHS has increased, I think it's doubled in the last 20 years. If you were headed for 5 million people on a waiting list in 2019, which we are, in a country that's got 64.2 million people in it, to have almost 10% of people on a waiting list for healthcare, you would be finished, right? Healthcare in, a, in an ideal world should be less expensive every year. Why? Because people are getting less sick. In a sane system, you would incentivize healthy lifestyles. And then obviously there's some things that you just can't help. You get a broken leg, you can get insurance for that. The NHS becomes more and more expensive every year. We have a shortage of doctors, but you're not allowed to build more medical schools. But it's always more funding. Well, why don't we go for the obvious one first? Why don't we just build a ton of medical schools? And then because there's more people who are able to provide those services, the price of services go down. But there's no profit motive. There's no reason to rationally allocate services. And then because the NHS is under threat of cuts or privatization, people in the system don't want to report Oh, I don't want to report the inefficiency. I don't want to report the thing because I might lose my job. These, it's going to undermine, you know. So it ends up with a bunch of vested interests. They used to have schools where the students, the older students, taught the younger students. That's a great way to economise and a great way for everyone to get great education. But because there's no innovation in the system, you can't compare NHS A to NHS B and say, well, NHS B is is performing better, so I'm going to pay my national insurance to them. You know, you, you don't have, without being able to compare services across the economy, you don't know who's doing a good job of what and who's doing a bad job of what. And if they're doing a bad job, you're still forced to pay for it. I mean, this is what really frustrates me about statism. How smart do you need to be to know if I offer you a service that you have to pay for whether you like it or not, and not only that, but I'm the only person allowed to provide that service. No one else is allowed to. I can make it illegal for other people. How intelligent do you need to know that you're going to get a pretty terrible service? So, um, you had a question. Oh yeah, I was, kind of, I was going to ask about healthcare as well, but um, it's kind of a similar question, but what would you say to people who say that Americans, the American healthcare system is relatively more privatised and is less efficient? And like if you look at how much people spend in healthcare compared to Canadian or like European government. Yes, and America spends more on healthcare per head than any other country. Um, but just because it's a private system doesn't mean it's a free market system. You're not allowed to build hospitals without going in front of a committee to justify building a hospital. And the people on the board of the committee are going to include people from the hospital that already exists. You're not allowed to buy insurance from a state other than your own, which means that people can't compete on the price of insurance. And 50% of the spending on healthcare in America is the government. So there, we know it's not a free market system already if the government's doing half the spending. Um, so the thing is, when you have a restriction in the supply of services, you will always have um, high prices, but we can't say that the American, the, 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 the system in America is terrible, and I'm not going to stand here and defend it, but it's not without some advantages over other systems. For example, 
almost all the great breakthroughs and inventions in healthcare come out of the so-called private system in the US. That means that countries like ours and Denmark, you know, they use a lot of American technology. They can have their socialized service because they benefit from innovations made in America's private system. If they go full single payer, the whole world will lose from the innovations that are coming out of America, not just Americans. And you know, the, the, you, can, you can go in the next day to get an operation in America for an operation you might be in a waiting list here or in Canada for. People come from Canada to pay for healthcare in America because you can get in the next day. People have said in Canada they can get a CAT scan for their cat faster than they can get one in, uh, on the National Health Service. So the thing is, yeah, that's a common misconception and it's very important to say we don't agree with the American system. You know, we're not for it. It is the worst of both worlds. It's that public-private partnership. So uh, I hope that I've taught you something about thinking economically and it was a worthwhile talk. Uh, thanks very much for your attention. And uh, we're going to go for a break, then we'll hand you over to our great leader, Tan. <laughs> I've got to say this from the panel as well, so that's also happening. Great, thank you.